0: You're listening to Campus Review Radio.
1: This is Carl Treacher and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of Headex, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. <music> On this episode of HeadX, Martin speaks with our first international guest, Giselle Burns from Massey. G'day, Martin.
0: G'day there, Carl. It's um, really good to have someone from close to home in New Zealand, but a little bit out of the, the normal perspectives that we've had in the show, up, the show up until now from Australia. So I'm looking forward to today.
1: My understanding is she's got experience from Australian university sector as well as New Zealand.
0: Yeah, that's not unusual for academics in this part of the world to, well, first of all, it's not unusual for academics to have a a range of organisational institutional experiences and some international experience we have positively encouraged that in academics um, around the world actually but she's had experience as we'll hear in the interview at Charles Darwin University as well as a a number of institutions in New Zealand
1: I've got no experience myself personally around the difference between Australia and New Zealand higher education sector I'd imagine because we've worked with lots of New Zealand uh, organisations and Australian companies I don't see a huge amount of difference things like um Their pragmatism and their investment in terms of creativity are probably things that jump out for me, so I'd be keen to hear what she has to say
0: about that. Yeah, well, it's actually, the the, the English-speaking world has university systems that have grown from a, a, a common base, but have evolved in quite different ways. And perhaps in, the, part of that's around the policy settings and the regulations, but it's also around the practices of people. I mean, one of the things that's unusual about Australian higher education is how most students go to their local university. And with all that we've talked about with the emergence of regional universities and imminent disruption, that's uh, something that will play out different here from else, than elsewhere. But in other parts of the world, in, certainly in the UK and America, and also it, 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 I learned from this interview in New Zealand, the tendency of students to travel away from home to pursue university experiences is much more common. So, yeah, there's a number of differences, but enough, enough similarities for us to have some good learning points from talking to such a leading figure in the New Zealand university system. And
1: New Zealand has been a a real leader in many, many facets of industry. So I'd be interested to see how well that plays out. And just just getting back or looping back on our interview from last week with REA Group, um, you know, we've had a a lot of response from the market based on that interview um, and interest in um, what they've said in terms of building culture based on a more collaborative, empathetic leadership.
0: Well, I I mean, I, I think there's huge parallels between what we learned last week from the REA interview and our commentary around. Around it, and what what comes up this week, in that um, in both cases we see a strong call for leadership being at the heart of cultural innovation. But the starting points of a new tech startup company in the real estate sector, and. And universities that are following a model that's been around for a thousand years and in many ways are really quite conservative. I mean, culture is dominant in both of those episodes and in the interviews themselves. But the starting point of culture are quite different in those two situations. And in universities, as we'll hear from Giselle, there's a lot of focus on the culture of collegiality, of consensus, of relevance to community. Um, and there's a whole group of people within those organisations that have got enormous capacity and talent that could be un- unleashed if good leadership can make that happen.
1: Something that I'm noticing is the gap between some of the, the guests that we've had on. So the, the industries that I've worked with traditionally, being tech industries and even more progressive banks and then universities, the, the distance between what they're currently doing, what both parties are currently doing, it's it's quite vast. So mapping out the migration or how would we get from one to the other i think is is fascinating and i'll talk a little bit more after the interview about the concept of culture shock and some of the reasons why culture programs or culture migration actually fails i know we talked to rea group which is a a big hitter and a big winner in the australian market internationally in terms of um, property technology but if you look at the the global exemplar uh, being Google, you know, 150,000 employees, GDP of that of Hong Kong or or South Africa, um, you know, their culture and the their culture and their engagement is heralded as the world's best, and they are very high performing. But they say things that I don't think we could expect the higher education industry to uh, to um, adopt immediately. It's going to need to be a uh, put a beacon on the hill, but then map out very carefully that. Process and that chart, or chart that course, I should say, to uh, making a way to that objective. I,
0: I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we've we've we, we've made many calls, and our guests have shared our thoughts around the imminent disruption of the higher education sector. But we, maybe we've given lots of focus on where they might disrupt towards and the parallels with other sectors. It's where they're disrupting from that is so idiosyncratic. I think in universities, I mean, they have been around for hundreds of years as a model around the world, and they do start with quite a distinct and, and, and specific culture. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about whether culture shock is lessened or added to by significant changes in leadership because one of the things that we've seen this week is there's a very interesting article coming out in the Times Higher Education publication around the fact that we've had almost 20 university vice-chancellors or leaders... Um, move on and be new positions filled in Australia since the start of 2020. That's more than twice as many as we'd normally have in a whole year. So do new leaders give rise to big changes in culture? Or do they themselves bring about culture shock? Yeah, it's a great, great question, and I think there's lots of different answers to it.
1: Man, being a student of culture for so long myself, there's there's two things that stand out as a free kick in terms of shifting your culture quickly. One is a change in leadership, and we see that we've seen that through everything from when Steve Jobs left Apple to when he came back to Apple, uh, to the changes in CEOs in banks that have happened through the Royal Commission over the last few years, um, uh, and also change in location. You know, so the two things are change in leadership and change in environment. And my thinking around that is we've actually had a forced change of environment in that we don't, haven't moved physical environment, we've moved into a digital environment. So there's opportunity here that, there, that doesn't usually avail itself to organizations if they recognize that one of the two key, dramatic, heavily weighted levers is actually in play at the moment. You know, we've
0: got a situation where change is really possible for companies. Well, change is clearly possible and needed for universities too. And with 20 of the the 39 Australian universities now having leaders that are less than 12 to 15 months in place or still imminently about to be filled, what a great opportunity to lead us from the culture that we've inherited in this sector into one that's more going to be more suitable for the disrupting world that's happening in higher education. Maybe maybe we should use that as a bit of a segue to see what what Giselle's views as a global perspective with some Australian roots thinks about how the sector's changing and where it's heading. Let's do it. Today's guest on Headex is Professor Giselle Burns, who's an academic historian and provost at Massey University in New Zealand, having spent more than four years as a pro vice chancellor at Charles Darwin University in Australia. Giselle, good day to you and welcome to Headex.
2: Kia ora, Martin. It's wonderful to be here with you. And by the way, kia ora means hello, uh, greetings and good health to you.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much for those those good wishes. And um, we wish all the same and and more to you and all of your colleagues in Massey and throughout the New Zealand higher education system. You're our first guest from international universities on headaches and we're delighted to be in touch with the parallel systems that are in New Zealand as we explore some issues for higher education in Australia. And I might use that as a bit of a segue to connect um, your story. That towards the end of 2020, we in, I interviewed Barney Glover on Headex, and he spoke from his current role leading Western Sydney University. But he spoke very fondly of his time at Charles Darwin University and the and the importance of the place that has in the Australian edu- higher education system. Now, now you worked with Barney. I wonder if you might tell us a bit about your experience at CDU and the parallels you see between the mission and purpose and place that it has in the Australian system and the work you're doing at Massey and more broadly back in New Zealand since you returned home, as it were.
2: I was privileged to serve under Barney at CDU and work for such an important university in the Australian education sector. I mean, CDU has an enormous commitment to equity, to access Indigenous leadership and community engagement. and, And those are values that resonate really strongly with my own. Uh, and in addition, of course, CDU is a major online education provider in both the VET and the higher education space. It's an anchor institution for and in Northern Australia, and I think it plays a really critical and important role in people's lives. So what drew me to work for CDU uh, in the first place was to commit to that project, really, of community engagement building to work uh, in partnership with others towards realising the goals of equity and access and Indigenous engagement and Indigenous leadership. And that's something that very strongly um, resonates back here in New Zealand with our entire sector, but also with uh, Massey University.
0: Okay, I get a strong sense from hearing you there that a focus on equity and access to education and, and the issues of culture within our universities and their context. They obviously play a big part in in your passion for and what you believe to be i mean you call them your values but perhaps i might describe them as the priorities for higher education right now where, where, where do you see we're up to what is the state of play and the needs with regard to equity access to education and culture in our universities in 2021 do you think
2: mm. well let me just say a few comments about the new zealand context and then i'll then i will comment a little bit on the current moment I mean, here in New Zealand, the the, uh, priorities of equity and access are really critical alongside cultural imperatives. So we have a long standing commitment to indigenous engagement and partnership here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And this stems in large part from the 1840 Treaty of Waitangi, which recognises Māori as the first peoples here. And there are various rights and obligations that come with that. So my own university, Massey University, has set a goal to be what we call te tiriti, which is the Māori translation of the treaty, or treaty-led university, which is something quite new and some quite distinctive. And what it means is that we've committed to working to embed the treaty principles of partnership, protection, and participation through our teaching, through our research, and our engagement. And so for us, this is real and it impacts on issues such as how to live these values through curriculum design, through the practice of teaching, the conduct of research, um, developing our people and growing the capability and capacity of the hugely talented Maori academic workforce that we have here in New Zealand. and I have a view, and this is perhaps a personal view, Martin, that, that a focus on, on culture uh, and on place and on the local and on being grounded in place and mm-hmm. people is highly compatible with the goals of international impact and outreach. You know, engagement with region and place, I think, and in our case in New Zealand, Indigenous worldviews and knowledge systems can significantly enhance local communities in ways that are globally significant, especially when given effect through, you know, teaching and research. So, you know, you asked also, um, what about the current moment? And, you know, we can't have this conversation without recognising the COVID-19 pandemic reality. So we often talk about living in the new normal, um, and that much is true. And I think the, the pandemic has absolutely challenged the traditional university operating model. It certainly has here in New Zealand and I'm aware it has in Australia, but it's also highlighted the critical mission and the role that universities play in uplifting communities and sustaining them through civic engagement and civic leadership, um, particularly in times of crisis. So I think I think there's uh, uh, many opportunities in the current moment. And really, the current reality is forcing universities to come to terms with what our real purpose and mission is.
0: So I'm hearing you talk very eloquently there and articulately about purpose and mission in the particular context that you're in. But if I, if I think about its wider application, at the heart of a lot of what you were describing there, as I heard it, was issues to do with culture culture within our university systems. And I wonder if you might um, help me understand from your point of view, what the importance of leadership in our institutions and in the context in which they sit, what the importance of leadership is in developing and sustaining culture in our universities right now?
2: Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. And, And I think in this COVID world, it's patently clear we need a new and refreshing style of leadership. We need compassionate, real, authentic and engage leaders, you know, leaders who are not remote, but who are there for their people throughout the COVID pandemic and the periods of lockdown. We have seen and we've continued to see people on their Zoom screens and we've seen into their homes. We've seen their families uh, and people have really, um, I think, brought their whole selves into the workplace and they've had little choice about doing that. So, So in terms of leadership, I think we've got to really reflect on you know what Jeff Weiner who's the CE of LinkedIn talks about in terms of compassionate leadership you know understanding where people are coming from and seek to really be a spectator to your own thoughts as he says and reflect on your own present your own perspective and how you're engaging in that moment and I think this gives us a hint as to what people now expect of their leaders, you know, in the higher education industry, but also more widely. So um,
0: you're a really interesting guest for us on Headex, Giselle, with your experience in both Australian and New Zealand universities. Now, we all have little sort of sneak previews into systems by virtue of the places that we work in, and we've not been everywhere, but I wonder if you might help us from your point of view. Say what you see as the principal differences, in if if there are any, in the culture and styles of leadership between Australian and New Zealand universities, and and maybe use that to help us understand what impact these are having in these particular times of universities preparing for post-pandemic recovery. Are they the same or are they different?
2: Great question, Martin. Um, look, to my mind, the Australian sector is more corporate. Uh, I would say more commercial in general terms, the New Zealand sector, um, in broad comparison, places a very high premium on collegiality and on the need to seek consensus. And I think, you know, they're stark descriptors. Both of these have their strengths, of course, and you know, I'm constantly reminded that the challenge of leadership in a university context, just going back to our previous point, is really around pace and timing. You know, you can only go as far as your people are willing to go. So you need to take people on the journey. And one of the things that I've learned is that universities are full of very smart and creative people. So the role of a leader in that context, irrespective of the Australian or New Zealand context, is to highlight very clearly where we need to go and why. So to create and then unpack the vision a little bit. Um, But academics and professional colleagues will know much more about the how. They're really good at devising the how. So it's all about leveraging this capability and know-how to co-construct the how to deliver the what. And I think that's going to be patently obvious uh, in the short and long-term future. Um, One of the observations I also have is that in my view, um, the Australian universities, partly due to the policy and funding environment in which they operate, I'm much more accustomed to and comfortable with developing commercial partnerships, uh, working closely with professional bodies and industry and carving out very distinctive identities. I mean, having said that, the New Zealand sector is a smaller in scale. It's highly creative and innovative though, and we've got a vibrant research commercialization ecosystem here in this country, and I think this stems in large part from the kind of creative thinking that we're celebrating really prize here in New Zealand. You know, We also value an open access system to higher education. And this is something of a defining characteristic of our university sector.
0: So interesting to hear you comment on the, um, the importance and the, and the skill or capacity that there is to, to pursue research commercialization in New Zealand. You, you may be aware that as a new minister, Alan Tudge in a speech a little while ago now in Melbourne, has um, committed to research commercialisation as maybe being a direction for our policy settings to follow, and uh, even a driver of the distribution of funding in the future. I don't know if our policy, if our policy settings and regulatory systems are converging, but do you see them actually as different from each other at the moment?
2: Yes. Well, on the discussion paper, I mean, I have had the opportunity to read that, and uh, it strikes me that there are many parallels between the Australian and New Zealand university sectors when it comes to research commercialization. The challenges are very similar. So you know, what are the incentives for academics to commercialize the research? You know, what is the value that we place on that alongside the traditional values and metrics that we place on, on uh, traditional research publications, et cetera, and outputs? Um, and, and how do we support that kind of, uh, and nurture that ecosystem. They're the same kind of issues that we're grappling with here in New Zealand, although I think we're doing that quite well in terms of the number of startups that we have and the kind of way in which we do really valorize that sense of creativity and innovation. So at our university here at Massey, we we absolutely see enterprise thinking, entrepreneurial acumen as being equivalent to the standard research outputs that you would have. And we really see enterprise thinking amongst our students as the liberal arts of the 21st century in terms of a skill set to be developed. But you asked me about the regulatory systems and the policy settings between our, our two countries. Um, it may surprise you to know, Martin, that in New Zealand our universities are independent entities, but we are not self-accrediting. We have a national system of peer review amongst the eight New Zealand universities. Uh, So every university gets to see a new program or a qualification when that is put up for peer review. I have to say the quality of those proposals is improved through the process, but again, it's a highly collegial process. It does take time, however, to get from uh, idea out to market. In addition, in New Zealand students are highly mobile, Uh, They will choose to go to a university that is often the furthest away from home. Um, And the accountability expectations upon us are very high, both from our government funder and from our communities. And notably, we are not funded for community or civic engagement, and yet the expectations in this regard are significantly increasing, both on the part of our government funder and also on the part of the communities we serve. I think reflecting on Australia, self-accreditation drives more freedom in terms of what can be offered by way of teaching, and I do think it allows a little bit more nimbleness in responding to market needs. So
0: that's that's fascinating for, for me from an Australian context to learn that about New Zealand. Thanks for, for sharing that with us. I wonder if I can use that and the other things that we've discussed to date then to, to help get my, get allow you to share with us your views about what I consider to be the elephant in the room. I mean, there's there's lots being spoken about, written about, podcasted about, about a potential, for goodness sake, we've even got an Australian Prime Minister here su- suggesting that it's on the agenda, that disruption and new business models are imminent for Australian universities. So do, do you feel that some of that underlying culture and difference in leadership styles, but also... The, the differences between regulatory contexts make disruption any more or less likely in New Zealand universities than it would be for Australian universities right now
2: mm, that's a really um, that's a really tough question actually Martin I mean I think in both jurisdictions um, there are strengths and weaknesses and you know I can speak in the New Zealand context and here in New Zealand we've always welcomed innovation and we take pride in that can-do approach around creativity and innovation, often with very modest resources. And on reflection, 2020 really was a bit of a telling year. Um, just going back a few years, in 2017, the New Zealand Productivity Commission released a report on new models of tertiary education. They more or less described our eight universities as being slightly medieval or dinosaur-like actually, in, in our ability to respond to change. Well, I think you know our rapid response to the pandemic demonstrated this is patently not the case. But I think the challenge for us here in New Zealand, as well as for Australian colleagues, I suspect, is how far can we sustain the innovation that we've seen over, over the past year or so? How can we use this opportunity to really rethink what we do and how we do it? All the while being very mindful of the wellbeing of our colleagues who have been through so much and continue to experience Uh, The lockdowns and the pandemic. So I think in one regard, the COVID-19 pandemic has really disrupted the higher education sector and driven innovation, certainly here in New Zealand, but it's also exposed the fragility of our current business and operating model as universities. Now, while New Zealand universities were not especially overexposed to international students markets pre-COVID and to kind of weather the storm, although it's, it, COVID has, has had and will have deep impacts upon us this year and the next and the next few years after that. We are looking actively for new ways to collaborate together, uh, to think about a uh, redesign of curriculum, to rethink new delivery modes and to really drive new and innovative uh, research collaborations. So I have been thinking about how this might play out. I've just got a few ideas to share with you if if you wouldn't mind and maybe these will resonate uh, with colleagues in the Australian context but you know I think in the future students are clearly going to be at the centre of everything that we do and the competition to retain current students and attract new students is absolutely going to be intense. Student voice is going to be critical, it'll be a powerful decision maker going forward and I see that it already is. Um, The student body will massively shift in terms of its current composition and and universities will uh, have to diversify their markets for recruiting international students. That much is true to move away from an over-reliance on a a single source of origin. I think alongside this, and this is one of the things that already um, I see happening, students may look to study closer to home. What does that mean for the kind of provisions of student services that we provide? And, And students are going to be as diverse as society itself. So clearly, they're going to want to study part-time, online, as well as on campus, they want synchronous and asynchronous, they want to consume their learning and experience their education journey, I think, in ways that will be radically unfamiliar to those of us who were undergraduates in the recent generation. So I think the expectations are going to shift. The other thing is that I think the acquisition of skills is going to become more important than the stacking up of credentials and qualifications and chief amongst those is going to be the ability to think creatively, to think critically. So that entrepreneurial acumen or enterprise thinking is going to be really highly valued, I think. We've also seen, you know, online teaching delivery. Um, And that is, I think, now much more widely recognized as a valid form uh, and an efficient form of of teaching. uh, Notwithstanding the costs that it does take to maintain those kind of platforms, support and train staff, etc. But one of the things that's often missed in the discussions around online teaching is that it allows for continuity of study for students and particularly for those learners who are unable by virtue of where they live or their life circumstances to study full-time and physically on a campus. So I think, you know, there's a there's a strong alignment there between the equity and access agenda and online provision. And just one more thing, Martin, I think that, you know, there was a, um, a, a rush to embrace online as emergency teaching. And that was a matter of business continuity in 2020. My own view is I think that, you know, what will happen uh, in the coming years is that I think this will be a partial rather than a total online revolution. I think many of those universities who've got considerable sunk cost and reputation in the bricks and mortar experience will be highly likely to reassert the value of face-to-face educational experiences. So, So in the online space, it will be highly competitive, but quality will be the key differentiator there.
0: Wow, what a fabulous sort of overview of the strategic issues facing—I'm sure, I'm sure—your own university in the New Zealand sector. But I think many of those have parallels with us here in Australia. So, if you, as Provost of Massey University, then are seeing those as the issues, um, how, how well placed do you feel Massey University is? particularly, and New Zealand's universities generally, both in their, in, in their competition within the New Zealand market, but to, to face any global competitors in the way that, that, that those new markets that you described might play out. Are, are you feeling confident about Massey and New Zealand universities' futures?
2: I'm feeling enormously confident about New Zealand and our ability to take a lead in this space. And on behalf of Massey, um, we were extraordinarily well-placed to respond to the rapid shift to online learning last year because we've been for the past 50 years um, the major distance learning provider in this country. So before the pandemic hit, more than half of our students already studied by distance and uh, our academic staff are absolutely skilled uh, experts in teaching uh, online and teaching via distance. Um, So our staff and our systems were enormously well prepared to make the shift. And in the past 12 months, we've continued to refine both our online and our blended delivery. Now, one thing you may not be aware, Martin, is that uh, Massey University has three physical campuses across the North Island of New Zealand, in addition to our online offering. So we're taking a blended approach where we offer online and on-campus teaching, but without major duplication across those teaching platforms. And that blended approach is going to be a defining part of our future, and that will set us apart from the other universities uh, in this country. Can I also say, because I've been talking about teaching, that our researchers, our scientists and our social scientists particularly, have been huge contributors and remain so to advising our government on how to manage the pandemic and its effect. So we saw psychologists, social scientists, philosophers even have been offering advice on, on how to cope with uh, living in isolation, You know the importance of community resilience. And most importantly, and this is something that we talk about all the time in New Zealand, how kindness and tolerance is so very critical at this time. So so look, I'm enormously confident in New Zealand and especially Massey's ability to respond, to innovate and to front foot the changes that we anticipate, meeting student learning expectations particularly, and working in partnership with the communities we exist exist to serve to, to give them research that matters.
0: But you've painted a picture there, both in your teaching and learning and research, of the importance of um, some local markets and some local needs, maybe national needs. And you said earlier, and I think in our our interview, that community engagement and your own sort of commitment in your university to civic leadership is is not funded directly as such. And yet I, I sense that a focus on being innovative in this space is a bit of the the New Zealand's university you know point of difference maybe I mean do you think there are implications here from the way you've described the the effect perhaps on both local serving of of teaching and learning needs and the research influence of universities for the mission purpose and role of the University of of the future in New Zealand and maybe beyond to be changed as a result of the pandemic?
2: Yes, look, look, it's no accident that New Zealand universities have performed extremely well in the Times Higher Education Research Impact rankings. And that's because New Zealand universities are expected to deliver a social good dividend to our communities and to do this through our teaching and research. And as I've already said, while this is an unfunded stream of activity, it's absolutely critical to our mission and purpose. So in our normal business, we are actually addressing and responding to those social development goals that the Times Higher Ed ranking is based on. And just, you know, reflecting on this further, because um, I am a historian after all, Martin, Um, you know, I think what the current historical moment is showing us, you know, you think about Black Lives Matter Me Too, Extinction Rebellion, other global social justice movements, along with the assault on truth and objectivity that we have seen globally in the last few years, is that universities matter. And I think that in a world where information is now just a click away and it's seemingly ubiquitous, and where the veracity of that information is often unknown or 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 challenged, it's become patently clear that universities are not just purveyors of content, but rather we create and we curate knowledge and information, interpreting it and helping to explain it. So, you know, we play an active role in this process. And in the context of the fake news moment, I think we need experts now more than ever. And, you know, one more thing too, is that what is also very clear, I think, is that universities, will play an important and critical role in societal and economic post-COVID reconstruction. History tells us this much from the long arc of the 20th century. Universities have always been involved in missions and exercises around national reconstruction. So I think most notably, the current crisis that we're living through is, is also making us realize that digital communication online platforms and capability and therefore online education is going to play a much bigger role in the future. So look, I'm really confident uh, on that platform and on that basis that New Zealand universities are going to continue to compete in the global marketplace for staff and students. We know that one of the big challenges uh, of the next decade is gonna be the global war for talent and that is both staff and students. Because I think universities are going to evolve and adapt while maintaining their key roles as sites of research excellence and places of higher learning. So, you know, I'm really excited to see New Zealand universities taking a critical leadership role in this regard. You know, being a university that is both of Aotearoa, New Zealand, of this place, and of the world where our graduates are equally at ease in both. That's something we're very much striving for here at Massey. And I believe that this will be the defining characteristic of a successful 21st century university.
0: Well, that's a very optimistic note, perhaps, for us to bring this um, particular interview to a conclusion on, Giselle. Thanks very much for joining us on HeadEx. We wish you well in Massey with all that you're doing and good luck with your curating of knowledge in a university that's got a real purposeful focus for the future.
1: Go to Martin. Martin, what jumped out from me in that interview, other than uh, Giselle's energy and her, her articulation, was the culture is hardwired into that organisation. She talked about the being a treaty-led university. So one of the things that when we look at culture is how do we make this real? You know, symbols of truth is a, is a reality and a real um, highly prioritised element of culture so that it's not just communication. What's well, a symbol of truth that this culture is actually real for us and we're respecting it and we're doing things around that? So I think that was a really interesting observation for me, along with what she said around the importance of leadership—you know, being real, being passionate, being empathetic. That's a really consistent theme that we're seeing from not just the higher education sector, but the most successful organisations have moved away from being autocratic and um, dogmatic into this more human manner.
0: Yeah, no, they they came through loud and clear, didn't didn't they? And um, I think just because of who it was that was talking to us, uh, as we've said already a couple of times, our first international guest—you can't help but take uh, systems and global perspective on what's going on in Australian universities from that. So, um, you know, we've been very focused in Australian universities up until now on local competition. Most of our students don't travel very far to go to university and most of their partnerships have been very much with with local companies. But the fact that competition in the future can come from from anywhere and that someone like Giselle and Massey is focusing on how it stands in a new global competition for students that digital um, education might unveil is, is, a, is an interesting, fresh perspective to make, I think.
1: I think the, the idea of having a fresh perspective is really valued. The, the, I remember wandering into one of the universities many years ago that uh, I was offering uh, advice to or, or consultancy and really being scrutinised over my experience in the sector. And the reality was it was my lack of experience in the sector and my experience out of sector that was of value. And if you've got disruption coming from out of sector, you don't want to be looking to the tried and tested and true and, and aged um, experts. Sure, they've got a point of view, but I think we need to be really close to what's coming and who, who knows the outside really well so that we can study the outside in not the inside out
0: well that, that, that's so um, consistent with some of the um, debate that that has started to happen and that's the, that's yet to happen around the two different areas I think where government has called for the sector to respond I mean the the most recent strategy papers from a new minister have been around research commercialization how can we work more closely with businesses and and the commentary around the student um, satisfaction data from just last week of the sector needing to do better. Um, doing better by doing more of what you did before but even louder and harder is I don't think what they mean. I think they th- I think they mean change and I think that plays out in both the student experience and there was lots of pointers to the fragility of business models and how we can sustain the innovation from 2020 and how far we can take it into the future in Giselle's um, message there. But I think the, the area of partnership, she, she commended the Australian system for its ability to form partnerships with outside bodies. There was a fascinating paper that my old colleague Rachel Parker, the, the head of the Global Change Institute at the University of Queensland, published in the conversation recently around the need to focus on partnerships with businesses in, in making research really effective in terms of commercialization and other, other forms of change. And I think there's a couple of pointers there of what must do better might mean. It probably means must do different. Yeah, I think it means must, must do different. And I feel like there's something missing here in the conversation
1: that the it's all about approach. So if you've got a problem and you've got a, a conditioned way of approaching that problem, I think that's where we need to start. Let's actually look at the way, how would you approach this issue and do it in a different way and find new ways that you really don't, you don't have any experience with. You know, the inside out of Apple or Google or any of those organizations that have just grown exponentially is is. It's fascinating to know that they don't approach a particular problem the same way ever. It's almost like let's got we've got an idea of our, a way to approach it. Let's approach it that way. Now let's approach it another way. Now let's find a different way that none of us have ever considered to approach this product, this, this actual pro- problem.
0: Well, wouldn't it be great if the sector as a whole really adopted that philosophy in its thinking about how to respond? Now we're getting to the stage that we are following the pandemic – in how we'll deliver student experiences in the future and how we'll be relevant to society and to business in, in the great ideas and the great minds from universities. I, I think to, to re-look at the problem uh, uh, and, and to do that with 20 new leaders of Australian universities, that some of which, as we've observed, have been appointed from quite different backgrounds, there's a huge agenda of opportunity in the Australian higher education system to rethink the student experience to rethink industry partnerships, to do better by doing different and to break the mold. It's its gonna be fascinating to see how age old cultures in some cases bound by treaties from the past might evolve from that starting point to be fit for purpose for a very, very different future.
1: Absolutely, and that's uh, all we have time for on this episode of Headex. thanks Martin. Thanks Carl.